Hello, this is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 2nd, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, The Stakes Could Not Have Been Higher, Biden Praises Debt Ceiling Deal. Subheading, The President Addressed the Nation from the Oval Office on Friday Evening after a congressional passage of legislation to prevent economic calamity by Michael D. Scheer. President Biden hailed a rare example of bipartisan cooperation in Washington on Friday, saying in his first primetime address from the Oval Office that this week's legislative budget deal averts economic calamity from a default on the nation's debt. The legislation, known as the Fiscal Responsibility Act, passed the Senate late Thursday after receiving broad support in the House earlier in the week. The bill suspends the debt ceiling for two years and cuts back on spending. Seated behind the Resolute Desk, Mr. Biden said he would soon sign the measure into law and sought to reassure Americans that robust job growth, the economy added 339,000 jobs in May alone, would not be sidetracked by global fears about whether the United States is willing to pay its bills. Quote, Essential to all the progress we've made in the last few years is keeping full faith and credit of the United States, end quote, Mr. Biden said, adding, quote, Passing this budget agreement was critical. The stakes could not have been higher, end quote. The speech was designed to double down on Mr. Biden's longtime brand as a political dealmaker who was able to reach compromise with his rivals. His advisors believe that reputation is critical to his ability to win a second term in the White House. But Mr. Biden also used his remarks, which lasted about 12 minutes, to highlight achievements by his administration that are fiercely opposed by Republicans, and vowed to continue pushing a Democratic agenda that includes higher taxes on the wealthy, more spending on climate change and veterans, and no cuts to health care or the social safety net. Quote, no one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed, end quote, he said. He added that, quote, we protected important priorities from Social Security to Medicare to Medicaid to veterans to our transformational investments in infrastructure and clean energy, end quote. Mr. Biden went out of his way to praise House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, his chief Republican rival. Quote, he and I, we and our teams, we were able to get along, get things done, end quote, Mr. Biden said. Quote, we were straightforward with one another, completely honest with one another, and respectful with one another. Both sides operated in good faith, end quote. The president said he would sign the bill on Saturday, two days before the so-called X date, when the Treasury Secretary said the government would run out of cash to pay its bills, a situation that economists have predicted would cause global uncertainty and turmoil. Presidents often reserve the Oval Office for addresses to the nation about war, economic crises, or natural disasters. President Ronald Reagan delivered somber remarks from there after the Space Shovel Challenger exploded in 1986. President Donald J. Trump announced pandemic restrictions from the Oval Office in early 2020. Mr. Biden's decision to use the same venue on Friday underscores how close he believes the nation veered toward economic disaster.
Mr. Biden and lawmakers had expressed optimism for weeks that they would reach an accord to avoid that outcome, but the deep disagreements between Democrats and Republicans kept the country, and the rest of the world, on edge until the votes were cast in both chambers. In the House, conservative Republicans initially revolted against Mr. McCarthy for failing to win more spending concessions from the President. Several threatened Mr. McCarthy's speakership, but backed down amid robust support for the Speaker from other Republicans. Some Democrats in the House and Senate also resisted the compromise, but the White House made the decision to largely keep quiet as the votes proceeded this week, hoping to avoid inflaming the conservative opposition and making Mr. McCarthy's job harder. Mr. Biden has said on several occasions that he hoped to find a way to avoid a similar crisis over the debt ceiling in the future, and has mentioned the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says the debt of the United States, quote, shall not be questioned, end quote. Some legal experts believe that a president could use that passage to ignore the statutory debt limit, thereby avoiding the regular clashes between the parties. Mr. Biden said last month that he hoped to, quote, find a rationale to take it to the courts to see whether or not the 14th Amendment is, in fact, something that would be able to stop it, end quote. On Sunday, he said, quote, that's another day, end quote. Before the Oval Office speech, Mr. Biden was faced with anger among some progressives in his party that he had agreed to too many Republican demands during the negotiations. Some Democratic lawmakers voted against the debt ceiling legislation because of new work requirements that it imposes on some recipients of food assistance. White House officials have argued that the legislation removes work requirements for others, including the homeless and veterans. The president also angered some environmentalists by agreeing to approve construction of a natural gas pipeline through West Virginia and Virginia. Critics say the 300-mile Mountain Valley Pipeline will hurt wildlife and the environment as it cuts across the Appalachian Trail. For Mr. Biden, the debt ceiling deal helps to avoid undercutting the strong economy, which is a key selling point for his campaign. But his political advisors have also been concerned about maintaining support from the coalition of voters who put him in office in 2020, some of whom have been disappointed with his achievements in climate, criminal justice, and other areas. Heading, more than 230 dead and 900 injured in train crash in India. Subheading, Indian News reports said the tragedy occurred after at least 10 train cars derailed. By Dan Belivsky. Two trains derailed in India in the eastern state of Odisha on Friday, government officials said, killing more than 230 people and injuring hundreds more in an accident that shook the country. Odisha's chief secretary, Pradeep Jena, said on Twitter that 233 people had been killed and another 900 injured. Indian news reports described harrowing scenes as teams of rescue workers with dogs and cutting equipment labored frantically to free the injured who were trapped in the train wreckage. Amitiba Sharma, a railroad ministry spokesman, 
was quoted by the Times of India as saying that 10 to 12 coaches of one train had derailed, and that some of the debris then landed on a nearby track where it was hit by another train. Video footage of the scene of the crash showed stunned onlookers, and Indian news reports said more than 50 ambulances had arrived to the area, along with teams of doctors to tend to the injured. Ashok Samal, a shopkeeper, told the Hindunasan Times that he was ending his day near the railway track in his village of Bahanga on Friday when he heard a deafening noise, ran to the track on the main line between Kolkata and Chennai, and saw a pile of mangled train cars. Quote, there were loud shrieks and blood all over, end quote, he told the newspaper, adding that he saw people trapped under coaches and people wailing for help. Ashwini Vaishnav, the Minister of Railways, said on Twitter that the National Disaster Response Force had been mobilized, along with rescue workers from the Air Force. Dozens of trains were canceled. Prime Minister Narendra Modi offered his condolences on Twitter, quote, distressed by the train accident in Odisha, end quote, he wrote, quote, in his hour of grief, my thoughts are with the bereaved families. May the injured recover soon, end quote. Mr. Vaishnav told the Indian news agency ANI that he had ordered an investigation to determine the cause of the crash. Indian news reports said that as news of the crash spread, along with reports of mounting casualties, desperate relatives went to Howrah Station in West Bengal, where one of the trains had been heading, eager to determine the status of their loved ones. At Howrah, one man, Sapan Chowdhury, told the Indian Express he was relieved to learn that his 23-year-old daughter was alive, though she had been injured by glass shards. India's trains transport more than 13 million people a day, according to Indian Railways, but the system has been buffeted by years of neglect. In 2014, there were more than 27,000 train-related deaths, according to the country's National Crime Records Bureau. In 2012, a committee appointed to review the safety of the rail network cited, quote, a grim picture of inadequate performance largely due to poor infrastructure and resources, end quote. It recommended a host of urgent measures, including upgrading track, repairing bridges, eliminating level crossings, and replacing old coaches with safer ones that better protect passengers in case of an accident. Passenger safety, or the lack of it, has come under scrutiny in India in recent years. In 2016, more than 140 passengers died in the derailment of passenger coaches near the city of Kanpur. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading. In Finland, NATO's newest member, Blinken details Russia's failures. Subheading. A speech by the U.S. Secretary of State struck a triumphal tone, while also warning against a rush to short-term solutions to the war in Ukraine. By Michael Crowley. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken on Friday took the stage in NATO's newest member, Finland, 
to say that further strengthening Ukraine's defenses against Russia was a prerequisite for diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine, and to warn against short-term ceasefires that might play to Moscow's advantage. In a powerfully symbolic address at the City Hall in Helsinki, Finland's capital, Mr. Blinken cataloged the many ways the war by President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia had backfired since Moscow launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. He noted, for one, Finland's decision last year to break from decades of firm neutrality and join the NATO alliance in a major strategic blow to Mr. Putin, who calls NATO's expansion a grave threat to Russian security. Mr. Putin's war, quote, has been a strategic failure, greatly diminishing Russia's power, its interests, and its influence for years to come, end quote, Mr. Blinken said. Quote, when you look at President Putin's long-term strategic aims and objectives, there is no question. Russia is significantly worse off today than it was before the full-scale invasion, militarily, economically, geopolitically. End quote. He added, quote, where Putin aimed to project strength, he has revealed weakness, end quote. He said, quote, where he sought to divide, he has united. What he tried to prevent, he has precipitated, end quote. Although Mr. Blinken's speech broke little new ground, its delivery from a country that shares a 832-mile border with Russia and that the NATO alliance is now committed to defending, amounted to a victory lap likely to embarrass, if not infuriate, Mr. Putin. Finland's official entry into NATO in April, Mr. Blinken said, was a, quote, a sea change that would have been unthinkable, end quote, before the war in Ukraine, and one that Mr. Putin had brought upon himself by invading his neighbor. Mr. Blinken spoke at the end of a week-long trip to Norway, Sweden, and Finland that included meetings with NATO officials meant to highlight Western resolve against Russia and discuss the alliance's long-term relationship with Ukraine, which is seeking NATO membership and security guarantees. Speaking to European leaders on Thursday, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine argued for his country's membership in NATO, saying, quote, a clear invitation from members of Ukraine is needed, end quote, this year. But in remarks on Friday, he also acknowledged that Ukraine could not join the alliance so long as it was at war with Russia. Both the President of France and Britain's Defense Minister have made a similar point in recent days, saying they support Ukraine, but that full NATO membership was for the moment out of reach. Mr. Putin has cited NATO's eastward expansion as one of his justifications for the invasion. On Friday, a Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry S. Peskov, said that Russia would continue to act in its national security interests, according to the state news agency TASS. Quote, this means preventing alliances expansion, as well as its obvious advance toward our borders and Ukraine's possible NATO membership, end quote, he said. In his 40-minute address on Friday, Mr. Blinken made a case for the Biden administration's thinking about the war, saying that Mr. Putin had unwittingly exposed and compounded the weakness of Russia's military, hobbled its economy, cost it energy revenue, 
and inspire NATO to become better funded, more united, and larger. The speech had a sometimes triumphal tone. At one point, Mr. Blinken joked that Russia's military, once billed as the second strongest in the world, was now, quote, the second strongest in Ukraine, end quote. But it also included cautionary notes about the long and difficult road ahead for Ukraine, particularly amid what Mr. Blinken predicted would be new calls for a halt to the fighting. U.S. officials believe that if, as expected, a coming Ukrainian counteroffensive fails to make dramatic gains, pressure will grow from around the world to find a way to at least pause the fighting. Quote, Over the coming months, some countries will call for a ceasefire, end quote, Mr. Blinken said. Quote, On the surface, that sounds sensible, attractive even. After all, who doesn't want warring parties to lay down their arms? Who doesn't want the killing to stop? End quote. But a ceasefire that freezes current lines in place, with Russia controlling large areas of Ukrainian territory, he added, quote, is not a just and lasting peace. It is a Podemikin peace. It would legitimize Russia's land grab. It would reward the aggressor and punish the victim, end quote. While insisting that the United States and Ukraine would like to see an end to the war, Mr. Blinken warns that Mr. Putin does not seem ready for a good-faith negotiations. The Russian leader has insisted that talks can only occur once Ukraine accepts Russia's claims to have annexed four of its eastern regions. Samuel Cherup, a former State Department official in the Obama administration and a Russia analyst with the RAND Corporation, said that Mr. Blinken may be setting too high a standard. Quote, if seriousness about talks means willingness to make preemptive concessions on territory, Putin will never meet that bar, end quote, Mr. Chirap said. Many U.S. officials believe that Mr. Putin aspires to gain far greater control of Ukraine than he has now, something that will require him to play for time. The Russian leader is, quote, convinced he can simply outlast Ukraine and its supporters, sending more and more Russians to their deaths, and inflicting more and more suffering on Ukrainian civilians, end quote, Mr. Blinken said. Quote, he thinks even if he loses the short game, he can still win the long game, end quote. Still, Mr. Blinken added, the United States would support any peace initiative, quote, that helps bring President Putin to the table to engage in meaningful diplomacy, end quote, the Secretary of State said. He added that such efforts must include Russian accountability for wartime atrocities and payments for Ukraine's reconstruction. Mr. Blinken said, as he has before, that a peace deal would have to, quote, affirm the principles of sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, end quote. But, also as before, he did not specify whether the U.S. believes that Russia must withdraw from all Ukrainian territory, including the strategic Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed in 2014, and which many analysts believe Mr. Putin will never surrender. Mr. Blinken also said that a genuine peace deal could open the door to the lifting of Western sanctions on Russia, quote, connected to concrete actions, especially military withdrawal, end quote. And he reiterated that, quote, 
the U.S. does not seek to overthrow the Russian government, end quote. Earlier on Friday, Mr. Blinken met with Finland's departing Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, and the country's Foreign Minister, Pekka Haivisto. Mr. Blinken marveled at Finland's ascension into NATO, suggesting that it amounted to a colossal blunder by Mr. Putin, who previously had relatively friendly relations with Helsinki. Before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he noted, just one in four Finns supported the countries joining NATO. After the invasion, three in four Finns supported NATO membership, he said. Mr. Blinken's appearance in Helsinki was all the more striking when compared to the last time a visit here by a major U.S. official made headlines. Five years ago, President Donald J. Trump traveled to the Finnish capital for a meeting with Mr. Putin, a trip infamous for Mr. Trump's suggestion at a news conference alongside the Russian leader that he trusted Mr. Putin's denial of interfering in the 2016 election over the conclusions of U.S. intelligence agencies. Earlier in the week, Mr. Blinken visited Sweden, whose bid to join the Atlantic Alliance has been held up by Turkey, and on Thursday met with Allied foreign ministers in Oslo to discuss concerns about Ukraine's long-term security. Helsinki was expected to be Mr. Blinken's last stop on a Nordic tour as Russia, China, and the NATO nations jockey for stronger positions in the Arctic. Later this year, the United States will open a mission staffed by a single diplomat in the town of Tromsø, Norway, its only such facility above the Arctic Circle, Mr. Blinken said at a news conference on Thursday. Heading Lawyers unable to find document Trump discussed in recorded conversation. Subheading. Prosecutors issued a subpoena for a description of military options for Iran mentioned by the former president during an interview. But Mr. Trump's legal team said they could find no such document. By Alan Fuhrer and Maggie Haberman. Shortly after learning that former president Donald J. Trump had been recorded discussing what appeared to be classified material describing military options for confronting Iran. Federal prosecutors issued a subpoena to his lawyers seeking the return of all records that resembled the document he mentioned, two people familiar with the matter said on Friday. But Mr. Trump's legal team has informed the Justice Department that it was unable to find any such records in his possession, the people said. It is unclear whether the prosecutors have been able to track down the document themselves, leaving open the possibility that the material remains at large or that the famously blustery Mr. Trump incorrectly described it on the recording. The subpoena, which was issued in March, sought any and all records pertaining to General Mark A. Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and to Iran, including maps or invasion plans, according to the people familiar with the matter. As part of their investigation, prosecutors have been asking witnesses whether Mr. Trump showed people a map he took with him when he left office that contained sensitive intelligence information. The subpoena, which was reported earlier by CNN, mentioned General Milley because Mr. Trump brought up the classified document at a meeting as a way to rebut what he perceived as criticism from Mr. Milley about military decisions concerning Iran. The meeting, 
which took place in July 2021 at Mr. Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, was between Mr. Trump and two people helping with a book being written by the final Trump White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. A small number of aides to Mr. Trump also attended, including Margot Martin, who routinely sat in on and recorded book interviews granted by Mr. Trump and Liz Harrington, the former president's spokeswoman. The subpoena appears to have been prompted by testimony that Ms. Martin gave about the recording to a federal grand jury investigating the documents case, according to the people familiar with the matter. A similar subpoena for records related to the document on Iran was issued to at least one other person who was at the meeting in Benminster. Stephen Chong, a spokesman for Mr. Trump, denounced what he said were conclusions based on, quote, fake leaks that were clearly partisan, end quote. Throughout the investigation of Mr. Trump by the Justice Department and then by a special counsel, Jack Smith, Prosecutors have expressed concern that Mr. Trump has failed to fully comply with efforts to retrieve all the classified material in his possession. A central part of their inquiry is whether the former president obstructed the government's repeated attempts to get the material back, first through a subpoena that was issued last May, and then through a search warrant executed in August at Mar-a-Lago, Mr. Trump's private club and residence in Florida. After the FBI descended on Mar-a-Lago and discovered about 100 classified documents that were there in violation of the subpoena, Mr. Trump's lawyers conducted their own search of the compound and of other properties connected to Mr. Trump. During those searches at the end of last year, the lawyers discovered at least two more documents bearing classification markings. Before all these searches were conducted, Mr. Trump handed over two separate batches of classified material to the government. One batch was given to the National Archives in January 2022. The other was given to a federal prosecutors who visited Mar-a-Lago in June 2022, seeking to collect everything they could in response to the subpoena they had issued the month before. In the batch that went to the archives, there was one document concerning military options for Iran, according to one of the people familiar with the matter. But it remained unclear whether that document was the same one that Mr. Trump had mentioned in the recording. Even if the government is never able to find the document Mr. Trump discussed, his statements on the recording could prove damaging to him as Mr. Smith's team moves toward concluding its investigation and turns to the question of whether to file charges. On the recording, Mr. Trump signaled his awareness of his inability to declassify the document because he had already left office, according to people familiar with the tape. If that description proves correct, it would undercut one of the key defenses that Mr. Trump's advisors have offered in their effort to justify why he was allowed to hold on to some of the government's most sensitive secrets after leaving the White House. They have argued that Mr. Trump, while still in office, had declassified all the material he took with him when he left. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Three Forever Chemicals Makers Settle Public Water Lawsuits. Subheading, The $1.19 billion agreement announced by Chimores, DuPont, and Coteva 
wouldn't resolve all the claims against them. By Ben Castleman, Yvonne Penn, and Matthew Goldstein. Three major chemical companies on Friday said they would pay more than $1 billion to settle the first in a wave of claims that they and other companies contaminated drinking water across the country with so-called forever chemicals that have been linked to cancer and other illnesses. The companies, Chamort, DuPont, and Corteva, said they had reached an agreement in principle to set up a $1.19 billion fund to help remove toxic perfluorocal and polyfluorocal substances, or PFAS, from public drinking water systems. PFAS have been linked to liver damage, weakened immune systems, and several forms of cancer, among other harms, and are referred to as forever chemicals because they linger in the human body and the environment. Bloomberg News also reported on Friday that 3M had reached a tentative deal worth at least $10 billion with U.S. cities and towns to resolve related PFAS claims. Sean Lynch, a spokesman for 3M, declined to comment on the report, which cited people familiar with the deal without naming them. Hundreds of communities across the country have sued Shimors, 3M, and other companies, claiming that their products, which are used in firefighting foams, nonstick coatings, and a wide variety of other products, contaminated their soil and water. They have sought billions of dollars in damages to deal with the health impacts and the cost of cleaning up and monitoring polluted sites. A trial set to begin next week in federal court in South Carolina was seen as a test case for those lawsuits. In that case, the city of Stewart, Florida, sued 3M and several other companies, claiming that firefighting foam containing PFAS, used for decades in training exercises by the city's fire department, had contaminated the local water supply. The announced settlement is, quote, an incredibly important next step in what has been decades of work to try to make sure that the costs of this massive PFAS forever chemical contamination are not borne by the victims, but are borne by the companies who caused the problem, said Rob Billot, an environmental lawyer advising plaintiffs in the cases. Environmental groups were cautious, however. Eric D. Olson, a lawyer with the Natural Resources Defense Council, said the settlement, combined with money recently appropriated by Congress to help the contamination, would, quote, take a bite out of the problem, end quote. But, he added, quote, it's not going to fully solve it, end quote. The preliminary settlement with Chamors, DuPont, and Corteva, all of which declined to comment beyond the announcement, may not be the end of the costs for these companies, either. The deal which requires approval by a judge, would resolve lawsuits involving water systems that already had detectable levels of PFAS contamination, as well as those required to monitor for contamination by the Environmental Protection Agency. But it excludes some other water systems, and it would not resolve lawsuits resulting from claims of environmental damage or personal injury from individuals already sickened by the chemicals and state attorneys general have filed new suits, some as recently as this week, over the matter.
the liability of 3M could be even greater. In an online presentation in March, Credit Sites, a financial research company, estimated that PFAS litigation could ultimately cost 3M more than $140 billion, though it said a lower figure was more likely. The company has said that by the end of 2025, it plans to exit all PFAS manufacturing and will work to end the use of PFAS in its products. Shares of 3M rose sharply on Friday after the Bloomberg report, as did shares of Chemours, DuPont, and Corteva. The synthetic chemicals are so ubiquitous that nearly all Americans, including newborns, carry PFAS in their bloodstream. As many as 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS in their tap water, according to a peer-reviewed 2020 study. PFAS cleanup efforts took on a more urgency last year when the EPA determined that levels of the chemicals, quote, much lower than previously understood, end quote, could cause harm and that almost no level of exposure was safe. It advised that drinking water contain no more than 0.004 parts per trillion of perfluorocatonic acid and 0.02 parts per trillion of perfluorocatonic acid. Previously, the agency had advised that drinking water contain no more than 70 parts per trillion of the chemicals. The EPA said the government would for the first time require near-zero levels of the substances. Some industry groups criticized the proposed regulation and said the Biden administration had created an impossible standard that would cost manufacturers and municipal water agencies billions of dollars. Industries would have to stop discharging the chemicals into waterways, and water utilities would have to test for the PFAS chemicals and remove them. Communities with limited resources will be the hardest hit by the new rule, they warned. The EPA estimated that compliance would cost water utilities $772 million annually, but many public utilities say they expect the cost to be much higher. PFAS-related litigation involves more than 4,000 cases, filed in federal courts across the country, but largely consolidated before a federal judge in Charleston, South Carolina, as so-called multi-district litigation because the lawsuits involve a common set of facts and allegations. It is not uncommon for so-called mass tort cases to be grouped together like this in federal court, making it easier to conduct discovery and take depositions when so many plaintiffs and defendants are involved. Elizabeth Birch, a professor at the University of Georgia who studies mass tort litigation, said, quote, without the settlement documents being made public, it's hard to say for certain which claims are covered by the purported deal, end quote. And the list of cases against the companies continues to grow. Maryland filed two suits this week against 3M, DuPont, and others. Days earlier, a similar one filed by Rhode Island's Attorney General accused the companies of violating, quote, state environmental and consumer protection laws, end quote. Quote, I think this is the tip of the iceberg, end quote, said Wenoa Houter, executive director of Food and Water Watch, a nonprofit organization in Washington that works on issues related to clean water, food, and climate. Quote, 
This issue affects people all across the country in so many communities, end quote. Ms. Howder said she wanted to see more stringent regulations from the EPA. Quote, we need real strong enforceable regulations on the entire class of PFAS chemicals, end quote, she said. Quote, I'm not sure that the settlement is as large a deterrent as necessary. So much harm has been done in northern Michigan. People's lives have been severely impacted. Setting up a fund is a modest step, end quote. Heading. Churchill downs to cease racing as it investigates deaths of horses. Subheading. The track, the home of the Kentucky Derby, is moving races to another location while officials look into why 12 thoroughbreds have died at Churchill Downs in recent weeks. By Joe Drape. Horse racing will be suspended at Churchill Downs and moved to a different Kentucky racetrack as federal and state regulators continue to investigate the deaths of 12 horses at Churchill in the past five weeks, the company said in a statement on Friday. Live horse racing will continue at the home of the Kentucky Derby at Saturday and Sunday and move next week to another Churchill Downs-owned racetrack, Ellis Park, in Henderson, Kentucky. The Churchill meet was to have ended on July 3rd, before moving on to Ellis Park for the traditional summer race meet scheduled from July 7th to August 27th. Experts brought in by the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority to examine the spate of horse deaths, two of which occurred on the undercard of the Kentucky Derby on May 6th, thus far have been unable to detect a pattern in the deaths. Diagnostics of the racetrack have not raised concerns, and dirt and grass surfaces appear consistent with measurements from Churchill Downs in past years. Still, the company said it was relocating the meet, even though it said, quote, no issues have been linked to our racing surfaces, end quote. Quote, what has happened at our track is deeply upsetting and absolutely unacceptable, end quote, said Bill Karstengen, the chief executive of Churchill Downs, Inc. Quote, we need to take more time to conduct a top-to-bottom review of all of the details and circumstances so that we can further strengthen our surface, safety, and integrity protocols, end quote. Lisa Lazuris, the chief executive of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, said in a statement to the authority recommended to Churchill Downs that it cease racing because the cause of the deaths hasn't been determined and therefore it isn't clear what changes to make. The deaths have cast a pall over the Triple Crown season, the few weeks each spring when casual sports fans pay close attention to horse racing, turning in to enjoy the Kentucky Derby Preakness Stakes, and Belmont Stakes. Some trainers were unhappy with Churchill Downs' plans to move the meet. They also criticized other recent precautions implemented at the track. Quote, Horsemen questioned the purpose of this unprecedented step, especially without conclusive evidence that there is a problem with the racetrack at Churchill Downs, end quote, said Rick Hiles, the president of the Kentucky Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association, in a statement. Quote, we all want to find solutions that will improve safety for horses. However, we need to discuss allowing trainers and veterinarians to use therapeutic medications that greatly lessen the risk of breakdowns. Drastic steps, such as relocating an active race meet, should only be considered when it is certain to make a difference. On Thursday, 
Churchill Downs put in place measures meant to discourage trainers from running unsound horses. Those same rules will be in effect at Ellis Park. The track will no longer offer incentives to trainers who start horses in its races or pay purse money for first place through last place, according to a statement from the company. Payouts instead will be limited to the top five finishers. Horses also will be allowed only four starts during a rolling eight-week period, and horses that are beaten by more than 12 lengths in five consecutive starts will be ineligible to race until the equinine medical director approves their return to racing. The changes suggest Churchill believes its bonus policies, which were intended to provide fuller fields for the betting public, may have affected the decision-making of horsemen. Dr. Jennifer Durenberger, the Director of Equine Safety and Welfare for the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, met this week with veterinarians from Churchill Downs and the state of Kentucky to review necropsies, toxicology reports, and veterinarians' and trainers' notes on the deaths. On Wednesday, Dennis Moore, a longtime California track superintendent, examined the racing surfaces at Churchill and offered an independent analysis on the dirt and turf courses' suitability for racing. That review is ongoing, according to the authority, and his findings will be made public once it is concluded. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading. U.S. will try to bring China into arms control talks. Subheading. The nuclear order established during the Cold War is under more stress than at any point since 1962, but efforts to negotiate with Beijing are unlikely to succeed anytime soon. By Julian E. Barnes and David E. Sanger. The White House will renew its effort to draw China into discussions about entering arms control talks, President Biden's national security advisor said on Friday and will attempt to establish a global accord that specifies that artificial intelligence programs can never be used to authorize the use of nuclear weapons without a human in the decision loop. The speech by Jake Sullivan, the advisor, was the first to describe with some specificity Mr. Biden's plans to deal with a world in which, he said, quote, cracks in our post-Cold War nuclear foundation are substantial, end quote but the solutions he pointed to were largely aimed at maintaining nuclear deterrence by supplementing America's deployed arsenal of 1,550 weapons with new technologies, from precision strike conventional weapons to technological updates of the existing nuclear complex, rather than entering renewed arms races. For the first time, Mr. Sullivan was explicit on the American response to China's rapid military buildup which the Pentagon says could lead it to deploy up to 1,500 nuclear weapons by 2035, a five-fold increase from the minimum deterrent it has possessed for nearly 60 years. If Beijing hits that number, America's two biggest nuclear adversaries would have a combined force of over 3,000 strategic weapons, which can reach the United States. But Mr. Sullivan argued that the U.S. arsenal does not need to, quote, outnumber the combined total of our competitors, end quote, to remain an effective deterrent. Quote, it's important to recognize that when it comes to the issue of the growing nuclear capacity of both Russia and China, 
that deterrence has to be comprehensive, end quote, Mr. Sullivan said. Quote, we believe in the current context. We have the number and type of capabilities today that we need, end quote. His efforts to draw China into arms control talks, however, are unlikely to achieve success anytime soon. So far, Chinese officials have refused to even discuss agreements limiting their work on nuclear weapons. And tensions between the United States and China have stayed high after months of rancor and frozen high-level contacts. Though Beijing has returned to the table on some issues, it has struck an even tougher posture on others, complicating the thaw in U.S.-China relations that Mr. Biden predicted in May. China has questioned Washington's sincerity in saying it wants a warmer relationship. Mr. Sullivan said the administration would attempt to revive arms control discussions among the nuclear-armed members of the United Nations Security Council, which includes China, and push them to embrace agreements on basic issues that can avoid accidental conflict, such as advanced notification of missile tests. The United States established such agreements with the Soviet Union and renewed them with Russia, but there is no parallel accord with China. Mr. Sullivan's speech at the annual meeting of the Arms Control Association, a nonpartisan group that advocates nuclear nonproliferation agreements, came at a moment when the nuclear order established during the Cold War has been under more stress than at any point since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. China's buildup comes as North Korea has been boasting of major advances in shrinking its nuclear warheads, theoretically enabling it to put them on cruise missiles and other weapons. Mr. Sullivan noted that Iran has built up a large stockpile of near-weapons-grade fuel, a direct result, he charged, of former President Donald J. Trump's decision to abandon a 2015 accord limiting its nuclear activities. And Russian officials have been issuing more regular, if usually vague, threats to use tactical nuclear weapons. Quote, We're under no illusions that reaching risk reduction and arms control measures will be easy, end quote, Mr. Sullivan said. Quote, But we do believe it, it is possible. End quote. Mr. Sullivan said Russia's decision to suspend provisions of the New START Treaty, which expires in early 2026, and cancel other international pacts, had eroded the foundations of arms control efforts. Russia largely walked away from the New START Treaty earlier this year, and on Thursday, the United States announced it would take reciprocal action, halting inspections of nuclear sites, no longer providing information on the movement of weapons or launchers, and no longer providing telemetry data for ballistic missile tests. But Mr. Sullivan noted that Russia would continue to adhere to the core of the treaty, limiting its strategic warheads to 1,550. After the treaty expires, both sides will need to decide whether to renew the limits. Mr. Sullivan said that a fresh arms control effort could begin by expanding notifications of ballistic missile test launches among major nuclear powers. Russia has agreements with the United States and China to notify them of ballistic missile test launches, but there is no such agreement between China and the U.S. Mr. Sullivan said an agreement that China would notify the United States and other permanent members of the Security Council could be possible. While fairly basic, such a pact could lead to other agreements among the nuclear powers, 
including on crisis communication channels and restricting the use of artificial intelligence. Mr. Sullivan did not provide many details of the kinds of limits the administration would pursue, but said one measure could manage nuclear risk by requiring, quote, a human in the loop for command, control, and deployment of nuclear weapons, end quote. Artificial intelligence is already at play in some missile defense systems, like the Patriot, which can be set to automatically intercept incoming missiles. Increasingly, American policymakers are worried about the temptation among many states to use artificial intelligence in determining whether and how fast to launch nuclear weapons. While that prospect has inspired movie plots for decades, in recent years the real-world challenge has grown more complex. Artificial intelligence can aid in detecting incoming attacks, but in speeding decision-making, many experts have noted, it can also shorten decision times. The president might discover too late that a warning of incoming attack was based on bad data, faulty sensors, or disinformation. Nevertheless, some countries see some artificial intelligence as a potential deterrent. If a first strike decapitated a country's leadership, that country's computers could still carry out a counterattack. President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia often boasts of the Poseidon nuclear-armed torpedo, which can range across the Pacific Ocean even if the Russian leadership has already been wiped out. Quote, I can't speak to every context and contingency we have into the future, but as things stand today, we believe that we have what we need, end quote, Mr. Sullivan said. Heading, One Man's Mission to Make Running Everyone's Sport. Subheading, Martinus Evans Wants to Make Running More Inclusive. His new book beckons back of the Packers to lace up. By Danielle Friedman. On a recent Sunday morning jog through Prospect Park, Martinus Evans was received like a conquering champion. Every few minutes, a passing runner would smile and nod, congratulating him as they sped by. But the runners weren't applauding him for winning any races. You might even say they were celebrating him for his track record of finishing last. Mr. Evans is the founder of Slow AF Run Club, a virtual community for back-of-the-packers with more than 10,000 members worldwide. At 300 pounds, he is a beloved figure among runners who have felt left out of the sport. He's graced the cover of Runner's World, posed nude for Men's Health, and appeared in an Adidas ad. His Instagram account, at 300 pounds and running, has around 62,000 followers. And this month, he's releasing his first book, Slow AF Run Club, The Ultimate Guide for Anyone Who Wants to Run. The idea for the club was born at about mile 16 of the 2018 New York City Marathon, just after the grueling Queensboro Bridge into Manhattan. Mr. Evans was cruising along when he noticed a man gesturing from the sidelines. He took out his AirPods. Quote, you're slow, buddy, end quote, the man shouted, adding an expletive to indicate just how slow. Quote, go home, end quote. Mr. Evans tried to ignore him and turned his attention back to the course, which he eventually finished in just over eight hours, or six hours behind the winner. But as the bystander repeated his taunt, Mr. Evans got angrier, then inspired. The next time Mr. Evans, now 36, raced, he wore a shirt emblazoned with the man's phrase, slow AF, and a cartoon as of a smiling turtle. When he shared photos of his new racing uniform on Instagram, 
followers asked for shirts of their own. By early 2019, a running club was born. Mr. Evans, who lives in Brooklyn and is now a certified running coach, is helping lead a global movement to make the sport feel safe and welcoming for anyone who wants to run, whatever their size, pace, fitness level, or skin color. He said his driving message is simple, quote, I want everyone to know they can run in the body they have right now, end quote. Growing up on the east side of Detroit, the son of two auto factory workers, Mr. Evans, who is black, didn't know anyone who ran for fun. Most people he knew thought of recreational running as a white person's activity. As a boy, he was mocked for his size. He was known in the neighborhood as Marty the Fat Kid, he said. When he tried out for a youth football team, the coach made him wear a garbage bag on the field to sweat out the fat, he said. He didn't lose weight, he just felt ashamed. But after making his high school's football team, he began to develop confidence in his physical abilities. He attended Lane College in Tennessee on a football scholarship before transferring to Central Michigan University, where he majored in exercise science. Quote, I was like, maybe I'll finally learn how to work out and lose this weight, end quote, he said. Quote, and then I can finally be accepted, end quote. In 2012, Mr. Evans and his then-girlfriend, now wife, moved to Connecticut, where she had gotten into graduate school. He took a job selling suits at Men's Warehouse while he figured out his next move. The job, which required him to dress men of all ages and body types, would provide an unlikely path to becoming a fitness influencer. After months on the storeroom floor wearing stiff dress shoes, he began to feel an ache in his hip. The pain brought him to an orthopedic surgeon, who, he writes in his book, took one look at him and told him, Mr. Evans, you're fat. You have two options, lose weight or die. Mr. Evans remembered holding back tears while, with a half-cocked smile, defiantly telling the doctor, I'm going to run a marathon. He said the doctor laughed and told him running a marathon would also kill him. He left the appointment angry and still in pain. Another physician later diagnosed him with hip bursitis and drove directly to a running store to buy a pair of trainers, determined to prove the doctor wrong. For extra motivation, Mr. Evans started a blog he called 300 Pounds in Running, where he began to chart both his running progress and weight loss. After a few months, he was surprised to discover strangers were reading and cheering him on. He found that he enjoyed running, despite the passers-by who would occasionally hurl insults at him. More than once, Mr. Evans said, he has also been stopped and questioned by police while jogging. When he felt defeated, he'd glance at a tattoo on his right wrist that reads, no struggle, no progress. Eventually, he ran a 5K, then a half marathon. Finally, in the fall of 2013, Mr. Evans flew home to run the Detroit Free Press Marathon and deliver on his vow in the doctor's office. When he crossed the finish line, he wept. He has since gotten a master's degree in public health research and another in digital media and design. He said running offers him a sense of self-determination, confidence, and purpose. And while it initially helped him lose about 90 pounds, dropping him below 300 for a time, he realized that running to lose weight took away from that satisfaction. Quote, I wasn't 90 pounds happier, end quote, he said. He decided to stop counting calories and just run for fun. He remembered that what made him a successful salmon at Men's Warehouse was the ability to help customers feel good just as they were.
He suspected other runners could benefit from focusing on the joy of the sport over weight loss. On his blog, he leaned into his persona as a 300-pound runner. Historically, the sport of running has made many people in big bodies feel like they have to lose weight to belong, to be considered real runners, said Samantha White, an assistant professor of sports studies at Manhattanville College. By, quote, amplifying runners who aren't focused on time, but rather on community, end quote, she said. Mr. Evans is creating a space, quote, where recreational runners, especially black recreational runners, can find a place, end quote. As such, the first rule of Slow AF Run Club, which exists primarily on an app by the same name, is that members can't talk about their weight or weight loss. Quote, it is a judgment-free zone, end quote, said Jaton Pope, 42, a high school algebra teacher in Chicago, who is a longtime member and moderates the club's online discussions. Quote, it feels good to feel like you're not alone, end quote, she said. Quote, the more you see people in all bodies being active, the more, quote, it encourages you to take that first step, end quote. The club's app is free to join. Mr. Evans earns a living through coaching sessions, merchandise sales, and brand partnerships. He also works to persuade race directors to keep water stations and finish lines intact for back-of-the-pack runners and athletic wear brands to include a wider range of sizes. When counseling runners, Mr. Evans advises that, before even slipping on shoes, they should focus on retraining their brains to adopt the mindset that they can run, despite what a thin, obsessed, speed-focused culture might say. In his book, he encourages them to neutralize their inner critic by naming it, his is called Otis, which he imagines like an ignorant, drunk uncle. Lastly, he tells runners to move forward however they can, even if it requires what he calls delusional self-belief. On a practical level, he recommends that people run 70 to 80% of the time at what he calls a sexy pace, the pace you'd go if you were running in slow motion on a beach, Baywatch style, or what most other coaches call a conversational speed. Starting out, he suggests running for 15 seconds and then walking for 90 seconds. Then over 12 weeks or so, progress to five minutes of running and one minute of walking. Quote, starting gradual is great, end quote, said Anne Brandy, a professor of kinesiology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Quote, it's all about consistency. So you have to start at something that you're able to sustain in a short bout, end quote. She also advised that larger people carefully select supportive, comfortable footwear to reduce impact on their joints. More than a decade after he took up running, with eight marathons to his name, Mr. Evans is still 300 pounds. He's healthy by all of the usual metrics, though he doesn't measure his well-being or success as a runner in numbers. He runs simply to be able to continue running, for himself and for others. The longer he shows up and runs slow AF, he said, the easier it becomes for other runners to do the same been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 2nd, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.